Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 17. Jeremiah 5 verse 17. And they shall eat up thine harvest and thy bread, which thy sons and thy daughters should eat. They shall eat up thy flocks and thine herds. They shall eat up thy vines and thy fig trees. They shall impoverish thy fenced cities wherein thou trustest with the sword. Here, a coming judgment upon the nation of Judah is being announced. The particular reference is to the forthcoming Babylonian invasion of the land. It is Babylon which will eat up Judah's harvest. Now whilst the Babylonians will be the immediate instrument, it is in fact God himself who is bringing this judgment upon Judah because of the people's rebellion against him. It is a plain fact from scripture and here we have a distinct example that God deals with nations as nations. He governs them according to whether or not they honour him. We read in Leviticus 26 and verse 2, Ye shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. There God's word tells us that a primary factor in a nation's obedience to the Trinitarian God is the way in which it honours the Sabbath day, which under the new covenant is the first day of the week, the day of Christ's resurrection. A nation's attitude to the Sabbath will be a barometer of its attitude to God generally. That passage in Leviticus 26 continues. If ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing shall reach unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time. And ye shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land safely. So, obedience to God's commandments, including Sabbath observance, will actually lead to abundant harvests, and to peace in the land, and to freedom from enemies. So we have here vital teaching about how God deals with nations. And his providential government of the nations is as much a reality in our day as it was in the time of Moses. Let us make no mistake, therefore. It is the Lord who determines the well-being, or otherwise, of nations. This is precisely why Britain, in the year 2019, does not need to be in a union with 27 other nations in order to prosper. It needs rather to humble itself before the one true God 
who governs the destiny of the nations. We have tragically allowed the European Union to become a secularist insurance policy for a God-rejecting nation. But it is only righteousness before the Lord which can ever again exalt this nation. The Lord here in Jeremiah 5 is announcing judgment upon Judah. But in his wrath, he also remembers mercy, as we see in verse 18. Nevertheless, in those days, saith the Lord, I will not make a full end with you. Judah will not be destroyed in such a way that any restoration will never be possible. God is full of mercy to those who do not deserve his mercy. And so we pray that he might yet be merciful to our own country. If we are faithful and preach the gospel with no fear of men or of what they might do to us, then he may still yet at this eleventh hour choose to be merciful to us. Let that encourage us. We read in verse 19 here, And it shall come to pass, when ye shall say, Wherefore doeth the Lord our God all these things unto us? So when the national judgment actually comes, the people will express surprise that God has permitted such disaster to befall them. What have we done to deserve this? will be their cry. It is often characteristic of unbelievers to ignore the right of God to have any involvement in their lives. But then, when trouble comes, to complain that God has permitted some awful thing to happen. This is really trying to have it both ways. God's providence must either be acknowledged at all times or not at all. Verse 19 here continues with the Lord telling Jeremiah what he must impart to the people. Then shalt thou answer them, Like as ye have forsaken me, and served strange gods in your land, so shall ye serve strangers in a land that is not yours. And so the Lord rebukes Judah here. You have gone after false foreign gods. Therefore, I have decreed that you will lose your land and be made to live in the lands of those whose false gods you went after. Just as the northern kingdom of Israel had been allured by the culture and civilization of Assyria, so Judah is likewise entranced 
both by Assyria and then later by Babylon. Judah too, because of its attraction to Babylon's gods and culture, will end up being taken over by Babylon. This fawning upon foreign cultures, only to be overtaken by them, is also explained clearly in Ezekiel 23 and verse 12, where we read of Judah. She doted upon the Assyrians, her neighbours, captains and rulers, clothed most gorgeously, horsemen riding upon horses, all of them desirable young men. Then we continue to read in Ezekiel 23, in verse 16, of Judah's longing also to be associated with the impressive power and civilization which was to them modern-day Babylon. So we read in Ezekiel 23, verse 16, As soon as she saw them with her eyes, she doted upon them and sent messengers unto them into Chaldea. And the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love, and they defiled her with their whoredom. So Judah was enticed into seeking a political alliance with Babylon, being allured by their mighty and fine-looking warriors, and by Babylonian culture generally. Because they had a rebellious heart against the Lord, everything foreign seemed to appear more attractive to them. This was exactly the same mistake which the northern kingdom of Israel had already made in its political alliance and fixation on Assyria, which had also spilled over into the realm of worship. Assyrian forms of idolatry had tragically been adopted into Israel's worship practices. This verse 19 here, in Jeremiah 5, tells us that Judah sought a political alliance with Babylon instead of trusting in the Lord for national security. And at the same time, it became attracted to the gods of the Babylonians. They worshipped these idols, even though they were living in the Promised Land, even though they were God's chosen people who had uniquely enjoyed the privilege of the Lord's prophets sent to them as no other nation ever had. Here they are, a nation exposed for centuries to the truth of God. But they are being led away from the Lord by the allurement of different cultures and by the influence of a powerful empire. 
we cannot help but see a parallel here with our own nation today. Cultural Marxism and fashionable liberal secularism demand excessive respect for other cultures and faiths, as if there is nothing special at all about our own glorious Christian inheritance. Yes, of course, we love our neighbours, whatever their cultural or religious background. And we always seek to maintain close and friendly relations with all our neighbours, whatever their origins and heritage might be. We go out of our way to emphasise this, along with rejoicing that the kingdom of God is made up of people of every tribe and tongue. But we are not called upon to embrace the legitimacy of false religion, nor to promote the destruction of our own culture and civilization, especially when that culture and civilization have been fashioned so much by the one true faith of Jesus Christ. The Word of God does not require the nations of the world to abandon the security of their borders and thereby to keep on diluting their very nationhood and identity through mass immigration. And it is tragic that so many churches have fallen into the fashionable and trendy trap of teaching that open borders are the will of God. There are no biblical grounds for affirming that nations, in order to behave in a Christian manner, should cease to control their borders and simply allow anyone who wishes to come in. When Paul says in Galatians 3 and verse 26 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus, he is not speaking about the organisation of earthly nations, but he is answering the totally different question of who belongs to the true church. He is explaining that the covenant of grace, which brings salvation to all men and not just to the Jews, is a covenant which is open to people of every tribe and tongue. But he is not remotely advocating the abolition of national boundaries nor is he teaching that the nation-state is morally inferior to supranational unions of nations. Man-pleasing churches, therefore, must really stop abusing scripture in order to promote Marxist globalism. Individual nation-states are the ordinance 
of God. Controlled borders are the ordinance of God. Let us remember that the thrust of this passage here in Jeremiah is that the Lord is angry with the nation. And not just with certain individuals within it. He is judging Judah as a whole because it has refused to honour him as a nation. The application to contemporary Britain is obvious. Yes, of course, the Lord is judging all the individuals within the nation. He also desires that they might be saved from their sins. But he is also judging us corporately in our capacity as a people because nationhood is God's own institution as scripture clearly teaches. However, we in Britain are doing exactly what Judah once did. Because the hearts of men are fallen, British society is being allured by false, Christ-rejecting religion. Again, we stress that we love those of our neighbours who embrace these religions. But we must also observe how, for example, there are now Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim and Sikh chaplains in our British Armed Forces. This is not a development which Christians can welcome. Because to which God are we meant to pray as a nation in time of war? To Krishna, Vishnu, Brahma, Buddha, Allah? It was not those false gods which rescued this nation from the invader in 1940 by mighty acts of deliverance as the people gathered together in prayer. It was the one true Trinitarian God who manifests himself in Jesus Christ who rescued this nation as the people prayed. On September the 10th this year, the Quran was read in a memorial service at Westminster Abbey. Similarly, during the Commonwealth Day service at the same venue in March, prayers were read out by Muslim, Jewish and Sikh leaders. Let us remember that Westminster Abbey is supposed to be a place of Christian worship. And it is where our monarchs are crowned according to a distinctly Bible-based service. But will we have multi-faith prayers at our next coronation service on the grounds that we must be inclusive and must promote multicultural harmony? Last November, the Islamic call to prayer was recited at a Remembrance Day concert in Blackburn Cathedral. The call to prayer 
or Adan is a statement of Islamic supremacy over Christianity. Now, we know that laws and constitutions do not change people's hearts. Nevertheless, the Lord will not be pleased with our country if it abandons its formal national identification with the Christian faith, along with its distinctly Bible-based constitution and the historic biblical foundations of its law-making. The liberal establishment, along with many churches, now give the impression, by a craven conformity to the political correctness of the moment, that the Lord Jesus Christ was in error when he asserted that he is the only way to God and the only saviour of mankind. We simply cannot embrace false religion in our national life in the cause of multicultural harmony as much as we endeavour to love and be welcoming towards our individual neighbours who are of other religions. But the truth is at stake here. Now we read in verse 20 of this passage, Declare this in the house of Jacob, and publish it in Judah, saying, And then verse 21. Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding, which have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not. Here we have God's verdict on the nation of Judah, utterly devoid of understanding. Judah had been receiving the revelation of God's truth through the prophets. They also had the everyday evidence of God's providential control of nature all around them. Yet, they stubbornly chose to ignore God's warnings. For they were those which have ears, yet hear not. The general embracing of the LGBT agenda by our own government, the politicians, the media, large corporations and all taxpayer-funded public bodies is today an example of a foolish people without understanding. And tragically, many churches have capitulated to this trend as well. Verse 22 reads, Fear ye not me, saith the Lord. Will ye not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass it? And though the waves thereof toss themselves, Yet can they not prevail? Though they roar, yet can they not pass over it? The root of Judah's problem was that they had stopped as a nation 
fearing God. They had forgotten that it is God who controls every aspect of the natural world in which they live. They had forgotten that it is the Lord who holds back the sea at the shore, preventing it from going on and flooding the whole earth. They had forgotten that it is God who gives them their every next breath. Still today, the very fact of living upon God's earth is reason enough for men to be under an obligation to believe in the God who created them. Verse 23 of Jeremiah 5. The Lord decrees, but this people hath a revolting and a rebellious heart. They are revolted and gone. Neither say they in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, that giveth rain, both the former and the latter, in his season. He reserveth unto us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Here we have the verdict of Almighty God upon a nation. They did not fear the God who was behind the provision of their harvest and behind the weather which facilitated that harvest. Exactly the same could be said of our own nation and generation. Should we not fear the God who gives the spring rain, which helps the seed to grow, and who then gives the summer rain, which helps the crops to ripen? Verse 25, your iniquities have turned away these things and your sins have withholden good things from you. Judah has been experiencing poor harvests precisely because of her rebellion against the Lord. The Bible plainly teaches that calamities in nature can be the direct consequence of wickedness in a nation, including the embracing of false religion. Therefore, a nation today, which for example is prepared to kill its own offspring in the womb, or to promote grossly immoral lifestyles to children in schools, or to promote the legitimacy of false religions, in its national life, cannot presume upon blessings from God in the natural realm, such as abundant harvests. To emphasise the fact that the Lord is the author of and continues to sustain his creation is more than ever vital in these times when the Western world is being given over to utterly irrational fears regarding climate change. It is God who controls the climate and not men. And in our evangelism, we must tell the unbelieving world, including many young people, 
that they must stop fearing climate change and start fearing the God who controls the climate. We must tell them that our crops are watered only if the Lord Jesus Christ causes them to be watered. Because he, with his Father and the Holy Spirit, is the Creator God. The second person of the Trinity declares of himself in Proverbs chapter 8, When the Father prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above. The Apostle John likewise says of the Word, the second person of the Trinity, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Apostle Paul says of Christ, All things were created by him and for him. In the epistle to the Hebrews, we are told that Christ is upholding all things by the word of his power. Therefore, as Christians, we are supremely qualified to speak about climate change. And on Christ's authority, we challenge the modern paganism which teaches that Mother Nature functions independently of any divine control. And we challenge the blasphemy which decrees that man and not God controls the climate. The whole climate change angst phenomenon is indicative of a grave spiritual malaise. It is nothing less than a fruit of society's rejection of the providence of God in determining the circumstances of men, including the weather. It is often young people who are racked with anxiety about the future of the planet. And we are the only ones, as Bible-believing Christians, who can really help them. They are seriously mistaken, but we have compassion on them as sheep without a shepherd. They, for their part, need to acknowledge that the science behind climate change is far from clear-cut and definitive. As Christians, we are lovers of truth, and we live in a world where the father of lies, Satan, has his stronghold, and deceives all non-believers. So we must make known some hard facts about alleged climate change, remembering that it is at source a symptom of what happens when a society rejects the Creator God. Many people are concerned that the burning of fossil fuels, which creates carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, contributes to a harmful greenhouse effect 
whereby heat from the sun is trapped in the earth's lower atmosphere. Water vapour, however, is a much more significant greenhouse gas than is carbon dioxide, accounting for no less than 95% of greenhouse warming. Furthermore, carbon dioxide increases photosynthesis and so stimulates plant growth. In other words, carbon dioxide is good for the environment and is very profitable to mankind. The Earth's temperatures have in fact changed throughout human history, doing so in situations where there was no corresponding change in man-made CO2 emissions. Because it is the Creator God who ordains climactic variations as he governs his own creation. It should surely not surprise us that a major factor in determining global temperatures is in fact the sun. And the amount of solar radiation which the earth experiences constantly varies in God's providence. This is because of sunspots and faculae that change with time on the sun's surface. Every 11 years, the number of sunspots increases and later declines. It is accordingly sunspot activity which explains the advent of the medieval warm period which lasted from about 900 AD to 1300 AD. During this period, the Vikings were farming in Greenland and good grapes were being harvested in southern England. Then from around 1300 to 1880 AD, the world experienced what is known as the Little Ice Age. During these colder centuries, there were three periods when the number of sunspots was quite small compared to the average. For example, between 1645 and 1715, only about 50 sunspots were observed on the sun's surface, whereas the normal figure is something between 40 and 50,000. Additional factors behind global temperature changes are the El Nino warming of the seas near the Pacific equator and also the incidence of volcanic eruptions. With more eruptions leading to global cooling and fewer to the warming of the atmosphere. In the world as God created it and continues to uphold it, the climate is always changing. 
The Bible tells us that coldness and winters will be with us as long as this world lasts. Genesis 8 verse 22 While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. The Australian creation scientist, John McKay, commented way back in 2007, governments will not solve global warming, but they will find a way to tax it. And they will use it to increase their power base. As Christians, we are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. But, for a while, we are living down here in this Babylonian world system, which is a God-rejecting system where Satan holds sway. Babylon is always trying to increase its power base. There is grave anxiety about climate change in our nation today, precisely because for decades the population has not been taught to humble itself before the Creator God. That is why we have all this anxiety. We do not need more wind farms or higher taxes on fossil fuels. What we need is a nation crying out in prayer to the Trinitarian God who upholds his creation every moment. We need to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ of whom the disciples said, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? On February the 8th, 1750, London was struck by a major but not totally destructive earthquake. John Wesley wrote in his journal, How gently does God deal with this nation? Oh, that our repentance may prevent heavier marks of his displeasure. A month later, a second and even stronger earthquake hit the capital city. But still in God's mercy, there was not a total devastation. This is a verse of a hymn which Charles Wesley wrote in response to these earthquakes. Had not thy mercy interposed when sleeping in our sins we lay, the staggering earth had yawned and closed its mouth on its devoted prey. We had now with our city fell and quick descended into hell. Charles knew that the nation did not deserve to enjoy the blessings of God's creation. Many non-believers around us today consider that extreme 
weather conditions are the result of man-made global warming, as we have said. We argue on scientific grounds, as we have tried to demonstrate that they are wrong. But at the same time, we must tell them that the God whom they ignore in their sophisticated liberal secularism is well able to use his creation to bring his justice crashing down upon them. We have read in verse 22 of our passage here. Fear ye not me, saith the Lord. Will ye not tremble at my presence? And then a little further on in verse 29. Shall I not visit for these things, saith the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? The Lord will bring a horrible vengeance upon our own nation today if it keeps on rejecting him. However, we can still take heart because as verse 18 here has reminded us, Nevertheless, in those days, saith the Lord, I will not make a full end with you. The Lord has not yet destroyed us, even though we deserve it. He has not yet made a full end of us. We are still in a day of grace. And this goodness of God is meant to lead us as a nation to repentance. We, as the elect remnant in this land, the gathering of those who believe the Bible to be the inerrant word of God, we, as the ten righteous men still in Sodom, have a great task committed to us. We have to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to a darkened society and we must preach it with all of our hearts. We must go forth preaching Christ crucified for sinners and we must not fear what the world thinks of us and we must not fear what the world might do to us.